So this morning we're hearing from two psalms, one we heard in the call to worship. Psalm 19, which C.S. Lewis called one of the best poems ever written, one of the best psalms in the entire scriptures. And now I want to, as we listen to Psalm 124, back with Jim Carroll this morning, um, see if you can see or hear any difference in the theology between those two as we listen to God's word. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when our enemies attacked us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. God. Our gospel this morning is Mark 9, verses 38 through 50. Very familiar and very obscure verse at the same time. Uh, listen as Jim reads to the reference about salt. Just see how it strikes you. And please will we stand and hear the gospel. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. So good morning, I think the one thing we forgot to mention in first service as well as this uh, service is the reason that we have such wonderful worship leaders this morning and me um, is that Pastor Brown is having a weekend with his family at the cabin, just sort of one last family time together before the season starts in earnest uh, for the holidays. And so 
we were really happy to be able to give him that gift this morning and know that um, he'll come back rested and refreshed. And we hope that you'll still enjoy a wonderful worship experience this morning. Um, I'm delighted to be here. I, this is becoming my favorite place, and worshiping with you is becoming my favorite thing to do. Um, so thank you for being here with me today and with all of us. We heard uh, about salt today, and uh, I'm going to I'm going to speak to that in my sermon. I'm also going to be honoring Gandhi, whose birthday is two days from today, and uh, it just kind of wove itself into my sermon. So you'll hear some references to Gandhi as well. Um, but first, I'll tell a little story about my son, who just got contact lenses. He's 13, and so he's at that age where it's really important. Uh, to look nice, and so he had been refusing to wear his glasses for a year, and we, I had no idea how bad his vision had gotten until he came home with the new contact lenses, went into the backyard and was like, oh, we have trees? <laughs> it wasn't quite that bad, but it was pretty bad, and then he came up to me and he said, wow, mom, you sure have a lot of wrinkles. <laughs> We're taking them back. <laughs> Well, my sisters tried to come to my rescue, and they said, will you just tell him that wrinkles are wisdom, signs of wisdom? Not yet. I'm not saying so. I mean, I wish it were that easy. But of course, we know it's not. It's not automatic. If it were, we'd have tanning salons on every corner, and that would be all there is to it. Um, <laughs> but, but we look to the scripture for wisdom, don't we? And that's our record of our search for wisdom over the ages. Psalm 19 says that the law of the Lord will make the simple wise. In fact, when I was first reading today's psalms, I thought I would contrast Psalm 19, the theology there, with the, what I consider kind of bad theology of Psalm 124. A psalm that thanks God for saving us from the flood and from our enemies. Thanking God, I'm good with that. Um, but if we win because the Lord is on our side, what does that mean when we lose? But then I realized that's actually not the point. Uh, the entire book of Psalms is a passionate, intimate, authentic dialogue with God, our source of wisdom. And it includes everything. Our fears, our hatreds, our blame, even our blaming God. And the thing is, God can take that. God can take our blame, our bitterness, our sorrow, our doubt. If we couldn't be authentic with God, and authenticity has to include every part of ourselves, if we couldn't speak honestly to God, then our relationship would lose something. It would be fake. If we could only show God our good side, our positive side, our nice side, we would be hiding some of the most important parts of ourselves. We would be saying, in effect, I'm too much for God. God can't accept that part of me. And if God can't accept us as we are, who can? If we truly want a relationship with God, the dialogue has to be honest. Certainly the disciples were being honest, even blunt with Jesus, when they complained about the ones uh, casting out demons. Someone, not one of them, is casting out demons in Jesus' name? We tried to stop him, Jesus. 
I mean, really, does it, can't you just picture a scene on the playground? Let's say the apostles or the gifted kids, uh, and they see somebody doing a really hard math problem. Hey, you're not in our class. You don't have our teacher. You can't do that. And they go back to their teacher and proudly tell them what they've done. Any teacher worth their salt is going to say, guys, don't hinder them. They're aiming high. That's good. Help them. Which, of course, is exactly what Jesus does. And, of course, he says so much more than just that. There's two things that I want to emphasize in Jesus' response. One is the absolute continuity of teaching. Absolute continuity. That is the historical context that Jesus is operating within and the way that he's speaking to his disciples by reminding them of the moral codes of the time. And then number two is the absolutely new thing he's doing. As we see so often, Jesus begins with familiar texts and then takes them in a completely new direction. In today's text from Mark, the law Jesus references comes from Leviticus 19 and what are known as the holiness codes. This collection of teachings both reiterates and expands upon the Ten Commandments with detailed moral guidelines. And it's here that the injunction against placing a stumbling block before the blind first appears. Biblical scholars believe the book of Leviticus, try to say that three times faster, preserves some of the earliest writings of the entire Hebrew scriptures. In rabbinic Judaism, developed after the destruction of the second temple, just decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, this injunction was continued in the teachings and became known as Lifneiver, which is Hebrew for before the blind. And it was a serious offense. The law here is addressing the injustice and iniquity with which, in ancient days, those who had physical or mental impairments were treated. They were outcast and blamed. Not just outcast, but blamed for their ailment as a judgment from God for some sin on their part. Can you hear that theology there from Psalm 124? Talk about bad theology. So the biblical laws that protected such individuals were revolutionary, introducing a much-needed ethic of social justice. And the disciples would have been quite familiar with these laws, with this text. As I was working with today's passage from Mark, it, it kept reminding me of Matthew 5. I kept hearing Matthew 5, where Jesus talks about the fulfillment of the law. <clears throat> In Matthew, Jesus frames his teaching with a then-now construction. You've heard it said, but I say to you, this is the voice of authority that so vexed the elders, you've heard it said, but you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you're even angry with your brother or sister, you'll be judged. So listen to today's text with that same framing mechanism. You may have heard it said, that you shall not place a stumbling block before the blind. But I say to you, if you hinder even the little child who comes to me, who doesn't even know my name, you'll be cast into hell. How much more then should you be at peace with someone bearing my name on their lips? And what about, what about the stumbling blocks you place before yourself? If your hand or foot or eye makes you stumble on your way to the kingdom of God, get rid of it. Your own stumbling blocks or what you should be concerned with. Or, as Gandhi so often said, turn the searchlight inward. There's a quote I love that I think fits well here. 
It's from Lao Tzu, who was a contemporary of Confucius, and therefore would have written this around the time the Hebrew scriptures were taking their current form. If you want to awaken all of humanity, then awaken all of yourself. If you want to eliminate the suffering in the world, start with yourself. Eliminate all that is dark and negative in yourself. Truly the greatest gift you have to give is that of your own self-transformation. And as Christians, our faith tells us we can only accomplish this through our relationship with Christ. So now we come to the part about salt. Excuse me. Both Matthew and Mark have this reference. In Matthew, it falls between the Beatitudes, which Gandhi read every day, every day, and Jesus' discourse on the fulfillment of the law. We might even see this section of Matthew as Jesus' own holiness quotes. So in Matthew, the context is about keeping the faith, being faithful to the new covenant that Jesus brings. But in Mark, which we know is an earlier gospel, the meaning is a little more obscure. And yet, maybe not. Jesus stays in context. He's still referencing the old Levitican laws. In biblical times, salt held many meanings, but perhaps one of the earliest referred to preparing offerings for the Lord. Salt enhances the flavor of our offerings. Back in first service, Carrie had uh, cucumbers for the children's hour, with salt and without and asked which they preferred. It was pretty cute. Salt preserves, and the salt of the covenant represented the everlasting nature of God's promise. Is that what Jesus means here? He gives us a hint when he says, in a phrase that's been puzzled over by scholars and laity alike, for everyone will be salted with fire. What are we to make of those words? Some have interpreted them to mean that we will all be subject to the fires of hell. But that's not the Jesus I know. What did Jesus teach? That the kingdom of heaven is here and it's about love. So let's remember the context in Mark. Our own internal stumbling blocks. If the kingdom of heaven is here, is here at hand, by our actions, then so are the fires of hell. But we make our own hell right here on earth when we hate, when we judge, when we cast out those who are different. But when we offer those difficult parts of ourselves up to God in purifying prayers of regret and grief and longing, that's the fire we'll be salted with. That's what I think. Our own fire of repentance. And what does God do with our regret, our repentance? God answers us not with punishment, not with the eye for eye justice that has gone so beautifully put, would only leave the whole world blind. Not with that. But with love. With love. God shines the light of absolute love and compassion on us so that we can learn how to love even the most difficult parts of ourselves. And when we feel that love that Jesus told us was what God has for us and Jesus showed us is what God wants for us, Something inside us moves and shifts, and all we want to do is return that love to God and to the world and live to please God forever. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, that's all the salt we need. 
So therefore have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Give our anger, our hurts, and our sorrows to God. He knows what to do with them. But could there be yet another layer of meaning? And isn't that always the case with Jesus? We know his message was one of liberation, but not just personal liberation, but social liberation as well. We know he's referencing some of the foundational laws concerning social justice. We also know the Jewish people were paying oppressive taxes to the Roman Empire. The Roman soldiers had conquered salt supplies and zealously guarded the salt roads that led to Rome. We know how Jesus responded to the collectors of the temple tax. So think now about having salt in yourselves in that context as I close with a story. Maybe more than a story. Maybe a window into the continuing power of Jesus' message today. At least that's what I like to think. It's a story about Gandhi and salt. So as I mentioned, Gandhi read the Beatitudes every day. He loved Jesus. And he studied the Christian scriptures earnestly. His spiritual practices both sustained him and fueled his passion for social justice. It was a time when political tensions were at their peak in India, and the Indian National Congress Party had given up on any chance of negotiations with British lawmakers. While committed to Satyagraha, Gandhi's peaceful non-cooperation movement, they were uncertain what to do next. They looked to Gandhi for answers, but he was also at a loss when one of his close friends came to ask what he planned. He answered, I'm furiously thinking day and night, and I do not see any light coming out of the surrounding darkness. So he went into retreat, withdrawing into his small hut for six weeks, six weeks, while all the country was poised for action, just waiting for a word or a sign from him. When he emerged from his hut, he knew what he would do. And that was the march to the sea, the Great Salt March, a turning point in India's struggle for independence. And I like to think, I like to think that in that hut, as he prayed and asked God for guidance and read scripture, I like to think that he stumbled across Jesus' teachings and came across this phrase, have salt in yourselves. May the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord. May my prayers always be for peace and forgiveness and reconciliation. And may my actions, the one part that the psalm doesn't mention, may my actions also help to bring about that peace, Christ's peace, to all the corners of the earth. Amen.